ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Western Australia has always played a pivotal part in the U.S. space program. That's affirmative. Just to my right, I can see a big pattern of light, apparently right on the coast. Uh, I can see a, the outline of a town and a very bright light just to the south of it. Uh, on down... Uh, Roger, the lights show up very well. And thank everybody for turning them on, will you? Very fine. That was 1962 when NASA astronaut John Glenn orbited the Earth and did a shout-out to Perth in Western Australia. Once again, WA will play a key role in NASA plans, this time for the ultimate moonshot, literally inhabiting the moon. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak country, Perth. The who's who of the international space industry have gathered in WA to speak about the potential of this last frontier. I'm Siriana Nair, the U.S. Consul General in Western Australia. NASA is launching in the United States. We are putting together um, the Artemis Accords, uh, which Australia is a signatory. We are going to go back to the moon. We are going to put a woman on the moon and establish a long-term Uh, human presence there and eventually onto Mars. Over the past few days, space deals were literally being done in the hallways of the Indo-Pacific Space and Earth Conference, which is on in Perth right now, including using WA's mining know-how to develop instruments to explore space. Hi, my name is Roger Hunter. I work at NASA Ames Research Center. I'm the program manager for NASA's Small Spacecraft Technology Program. Scientist Roger Hunter is one of a large contingent of NASA's scientists attending talks about the future of the space economy. It doesn't surprise him that WA's space industry is rapidly growing because of the access to some of the darkest skies in the world. I remember growing up and I was living in southern Georgia and my family, we lived in poverty. You know, I worked in tobacco fields to make money when I was going to school because my parents, uh, we didn't have a lot of money. And they said, go make your own money, buy your own clothes. And I remember being in South Georgia before you know, light pollution was much less then. And I remember sitting on uh, the porch with my mom one night. And I was, I was not even first grade yet. And I asked her, what are those things in the sky? She said, they're stars. I said, what's a star? And she said, you see that sun that comes up every day? It's the same thing, except it's so far away. But to me, that was, it, it was awe-inspiring, but it was also profound. And Western Australia, you have these incredible night skies here that are so dark. I remember when I lived in Woomera years ago, and I had some uh, colleagues there that one of them had a really nice telescope. And we would drive out from Woomera, out into the outback, and we'd set up his telescope. And we would just start looking at the southern hemisphere skies. And it was stunning because you have better views of the Milky Way here than many other places. And it's the first time that we were sitting there and he had these cheap lawn chairs. We were just laying back <laughs> and we were watching one meteor after another across the sky. And it was just mesmerizing. And I was just amazed at the things that you could see when you get away from the city lights and you look up and you see the majesty of this cosmos. Now, critics of the space industry balk at the massive sums of money it spends each year. Last year, it's estimated 546 billion US was spent on space. But Roger Hunter believes it's necessary for the future development of the economy here on Earth. Exploration 
and science has always been, it's part of being human. It's in our DNA. It is our sense of exploration. You're born looking up. And every time you go to bed, you're looking up. Even though you may have a ceiling over you, but our ancestors were living, they, they camped out. They were on the ground. They're looking at, what's the first thing they see? They see stars. We are of that. We are made of star material. And that's where we came from. That is, that is us. And it is important for us to understand that even though life arose and evolved on this planet to the point where we're the dominant species here, this is not just our only home. We are part of this cosmos, and we are moving through it. And we have to understand how are we part of it and moving beyond the surface of this planet and extending our species to other worlds is going to be necessary for our survival. Tell me about this, what you're working on, your project, in terms of small spacecraft, if I've right. got it right. Yes. I mean, that's yes. very rudimentary. Will these small spacecraft have the ability to look back on Earth to see what's going on on Earth? They're doing it now. Yeah. If you look at Planet Labs, they have a constellation of spacecraft uh, they call them doves and flocks. You know, one is a dove. They're very, um, they want, they're out, it, it harkens back to their altruism. They want to be able to help sustain the earth, and they want to be able to sense what's going on on the surface of this planet. If you can't see it, you can't fix it. So these small spacecraft that they're flying right now are the size of a loaf of bread. And it is amazing the imagery that's coming out of them. You know who their number one customer is? Agribusiness. They're watching the conditions of crops being grown on the surface of this planet with spacecraft the size of a loaf of bread. It is going to be necessary for us to continue to observe in areas like that because the population of this world is continuing to grow. We need to be able to understand how can we manage our crops better, and we're using small spacecraft to do that because we're going to have to feed this population one way or another. It helps us be more sustainable. The criticism of the space industry is the sheer sums of money involved. By shrinking things, will that make things more sustainable economically? Yeah, it'll it'll make them more affordable, that's for sure. But when you look at the space industry, yes, it's hundreds of billions of dollars today, and it's growing. It's growing in an economy. That does have an impact on societies. It does have an impact on economies. It will create jobs. Let's talk about other socioeconomic conditions we have to address first. Greed. And if you, once you address greed, you can also get to the point where everybody starts benefiting from this. Some folks raise the, the point that look at these remote societies, remote uh, areas, where they are now starting to benefit from some of the things that come from space. Um, one speaker talked about what would happen if suddenly we denied space. We had an incident, you know, the cataclysmic Kessler syndrome in which we had a cascading effect of debris denying everybody's use of, of low-Earth orbit. We're going to regress We've become inextricably tied to space. We need to do a better job, though, of making sure that anybody can use space and it is important for them to conduct their lives and live a life that is one that is meaningful and also measurably good for them. I'd imagine you're watching space law, you know, the way that's developing international space law, quite yes. closely given what you're investigating and what you're developing. How do you see that going? Because there, that is kind of the pointy end of it, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is a key issue that is going to, be, has to, it's going to have to be addressed by diplomats in the future. The laws on the surface of this planet are not the same as the laws in outer space. You go look at the high seas, there's laws for salvaging. When someone launches an object into space today, a rocket body that is left up there is the debris as it deployed its spacecraft. 
uh, it stays for quite some time in many cases. That rocket body is owned in perpetuity by the country that launched it. That the laws of salvation on the high seas here do not apply to outer space. We're going to have to address that because more and more companies are moving into space. Look at Starlink, the company that's owned by SpaceX, and they're providing this worldwide internet-based space service. SpaceX with Starlink, they have more satellites on orbit than the rest of the world combined now. It is a stunning. They're, they're approaching 5,000 satellites in orbit, and now they're watching other companies that they are moving into space. There's almost an economic space race that is going on. All the companies around the world that are engaged in space want to put their own spacecraft in orbit, so they want to benefit from space as well. Our future is inextricably tied to space. Consequently, there's going to have to be some changes in laws and policies as well. And I think we're behind in making those changes and enacting those laws and policy changes. There are going to be more collisions in space. That is not going to be good. And we have to start addressing it today with policy and legal changes so that we can all share the common domain. Not just one company doing it, but all of us are inextricably going to be tied to space and we're all going to be dependent upon it as we conduct our lives in the future. Roger, you're here in Western Australia, and I'm sure if you're out bush, you can see SpaceX across the sky. It is literally changing the night sky here in WA because we have such beautiful dark skies here. Why was it important for this congregation of people to come together in this place? Well, I heard somebody say this the other day, uh, space is a place, and then someone made the comment that says Western Australia is a place place for space. Um, NASA, uh, ever since... You know, our creation in back in October of 1958, we've always had a relationship with Australia. We could not have gone to the moon without Australia's help. That is a given. I've, when I was in the Air Force, I was stationed here in Australia. I lived for a couple of years in Woomera, and we had a joint defense space communication station there. We had U.S. Air Force. We had Australian Regular Army. We had Royal Australian Air Force working at one site, and it was an amazing mission. I love that mission. And I always want to come back to Australia, and I was there at that assignment for two years, and I never got a chance to visit Perth. I never got a chance to come see Western Australia. And when this opportunity arose, and this was uh, offered to me back in April of this year, I was at National Space Symposium, and there were some Australian representatives there, and it said, please come to this and speak. I said, I'll be happy to. I said, because we are not going to do any of these endeavors in the future alone. We can't. Uh, it is too, it's complex, it's difficult, it's challenging, and you get ideas from everywhere, opportunities to innovate. Western Australia is one of those places, so why not? That's my answer. Why not Western Australia? Roger Hunter, who's the program manager for the NASA Small Spacecraft Technology Program, and he was speaking to me earlier outside the Indo-Pacific Space and Earth Conference. ABC Australia-wide. You're listening to Australia Wide with me, Sinead Mangan. More than 400,000 Australians currently live with dementia, but now a trial is underway in the New South Wales Hunter region into a breakthrough drug which researchers say could revolutionise dementia research. When you see people at 65 or patients who have lost their memory and they're in another world, we have no treatment for it. And it's terrible to see them deteriorate like that. You go and see them and it's, there's nobody there. 
Margaret Williamson has seen firsthand the impacts dementia can have on someone's life. Before she retired, she worked as a registered nurse. Seeing how people became lost, that's what motivated Margaret to sign up for a new Alzheimer's drug clinical trial run through the Hunter Medical Research Institute. Being an identical twin, we've been in twin studies from when we were teens. We said, yeah, we'll go do this, but there won't be anything wrong with us. We're okay. (laughs) And uh, they scanned us and did the blood tests. The MRI showed we had high amyloid and we're going, oh. And they said, oh, that's all right. Having high amyloid does not mean you will get dementia. It's just that you've got it. Both Margaret and her twin sister Marilyn have a high amount of amyloid. That's a particular protein in their brains. That qualified them to take part in this drug trial run by Professor Michael Breakspear. So all of us have amyloid in the brain and it's usually cleared particularly during sleep. In people who are developing um, Alzheimer's disease in particular, the clearance is slower than the build-up. So over many years, amyloid begins to accumulate. And the theory is early in the disease, if you can remove the amyloid, then you can prevent the downstream destructive effects. That's the pharmacological agents that we're using. They're for people with low levels of amyloid, there's uh, two of them that we're looking at, in particular lecanemab and denanemab. These are things called monoclonal antibodies. They attach to the amyloid and they remove it from the brain. This trial looks at how lecanemab could work to slow cognitive decline in people who currently have Alzheimer's or maybe even prevent Alzheimer's from occurring. There are multiple trials going across Australia looking into its effectiveness but Newcastle is the only regional location on the list. What we don't know is do we prevent Alzheimer's disease in those people who are still healthy? That's what we're doing with Margaret and her twin sister here. Uh, We know that with high likelihood, the small amounts of amyloid that we've detected will be removed. And what we believe from a whole lot of research is that that will lower their risk of getting Alzheimer's in maybe 5, 10, 15 years. And that would be the most exciting outcome. Every fortnight for the next four years, Margaret and Marilyn and others signed up to the trial will go and have an IV infusion. So we're given a bag of fluid. We don't know if we're getting the drug or a placebo. We won't know. They don't tell us. We just go and, and yeah. And our husbands have to watch us and see if we lose our memory or anything. (laughs) I'm hopeful that it will work. (laughs) You know, all we can do is go through the study and see what happens. It's early days here in Australia. The trial has only recently gotten underway. Lacanumab is still under review for approval by the TGA. But early overseas trials suggest that this drug could slow cognitive decline by up to 40%. The people on the agents preserve their level of functioning. So they looked at 18 months, they were at where everyone else was at 12 months, if that makes sense. So that's six months of a a longer window. We won't know for another five years or more whether it prevents the development of dementia because these people, no one has dementia in this trial yet. So it is a long game to play. These are just the first two agents. If you think of cancer treatment, tuberculosis, HIV, these all involve two, three, or even up to four agents, four different drugs. We're not just going to have a one 
silver bullet for Alzheimer's disease. It's not going to just be lecanemab or denanemab. What do you hope to learn from it, Margaret? Like, what do you hope to take away from this trial? That I helped someone in the future. I'm all right. Um, It's those coming after me that will benefit from this. So if we don't do something now, someone behind will not benefit. It's like with any sort of new procedure. If someone doesn't try it, it's not going to help someone coming from behind. It's a very generous attitude. That's Margaret Williamson ending that story from Newcastle reporter Larice Dixon. And if you need support, you can call the National Dementia Helpline on 1800 100 500. That's 1800 100 500. Jeff Britton thought he'd found his own slice of paradise when he bought a property near Childers, north of Brisbane in Queensland two years ago. It had the perfect mix of stable weather, green bushland and quiet surroundings. Until a composting and recycling plant opened down the road and the bad smell started to blow in, as Pat Heaney reports. It is absolutely an overwhelming smell. It is really vile. It is a really vile smell. Could you imagine somebody bringing a, a dirty nappy under you and shoving it under your nose when you were trying to eat? I don't think it, yeah, it doesn't appeal to you, does it? And it's worse than that, believe you me. It's got the perfect view, the perfect weather, and the perfect spot for you to build your dream home. Jeff Britton had found his own slice of paradise a 30-hectare rural property near Childers, three and a half hours north of Brisbane in Queensland. And he had big plans. Down by the creek here, for instance, when I um, I was down there, and it's just such a, a pretty place, and I thought, this is a gorgeous place for people to come and have a picnic and camp and, you know, do whatever they like. And I thought, God, you could even do some maybe ecotourism here of, you know, just overnight camping sort of thing, self-contained. All of a sudden you're there and you're just enjoying the peace and the, the beauty of it, and all of a sudden that stench just wanders across and it's like... Yeah, right, it's just, you know, like somebody just blew your bloody, blew your dream away, it's just gone. If you think a septic system smells bad, this is worse, so much worse. I've actually had friends here who couldn't put up with the smell um, and have turned around and left, oh, we can't stand that, you know, we'll have to get going. So, you know, that's how repulsive it is, that it even drives your friends away. How could you have people coming here to stay if they're going to put up with that? It was just before Christmas in 2022 when a vile smell started wafting through. And it took a little while for me to wake up what it was because I thought, what is that? And I was looking around for dead animals, like a dead roo or something. The smell was traced to a nearby composting plant, which opened in late 2022. According to the company website, the new grow Bundaberg facility operates under environmental regulations that allow it to accept waste from sources like green waste, food processes including fish and poultry, grease traps and wastes generated from an abattoir. They stated that this place ticked all the boxes. Well, it doesn't tick all the boxes because it's not remote from any, and I mean remote from any area within, say, a 5 to 10 kilometre radius of people that are going to be affected. Whether it's one person or ten people or a thousand people, it doesn't matter. You don't have the right to turn around and go and just wreck somebody else's life and somebody else's dreams. The devaluation of your properties alone, of my neighbour across the road, he's hesitating now, he's, you know, he's established, he's spent a lot of time and a lot of money establishing his property and he's about to build his house. I'm about to do the same thing and it makes you think, Phew, 
what will it be worth? I mean, who's going to want to buy a place when there's a stink like that? So there's the monetary side if you want to look at it. Money doesn't really mean that much to me. It's, it's the enjoyment of my bloody life. You know? And you shouldn't be able to just go along and just bugger up somebody else's quality of life because of what you're doing. It's, it's that simple. The ABC has contacted New Grove for comment. As for Jeff, he's there to stay. I am here, that's it. You know, and I can't just go and start again. I'm getting too long in the bloody test to do that. Jeez, I'm, I, I mean, I'm staring down the bloody barrel of um, 80 in you know, another three or four years. Yeah, I don't want to start again because, number one, to find a place like this is very hard. And I've looked up and down the coast, everywhere between Townsville and just south of here. And, you know, this was a, a pretty unique little piece of paradise. It truly is. Jeff Britton ending that story from Pat Heaney with additional production there by Ross Kay. And the ABC has contacted the compost plant owner, Nugro, for comment, but they are yet to respond. One of Australia's remaining regional matchmakers claims to be seeing a resurgence in the number of people using the service. That may come as a surprise to some as apps and online services become the norm for modern day dating. But not everyone likes doing it digitally and even the federal government has some concerns. Daniel Miles has this story. From a plain chair behind a wooden desk, Catherine Hebblewhite is looking for love. Not for herself, but for a growing bevy of single clients searching for the one. You see, Miss Hebblewhite's a professional matchmaker. It's a dying art, but one that's apparently undergoing something of a revival. Definitely, especially in people who are 40 and over, mainly because they perceive the, um, the apps as more of a place to go and find a hookup or, you know, like one night stand or a fling. The people that I have on my books are looking for long-term relationships. There are dozens of matchmaking agencies across Australia in what is largely an unregulated industry. Clients can pay anywhere from a few thousand to upwards of $15,000 for memberships. Ms Hebblewhite has more than 800 singles on her books. She offers no guarantees, but says people are happy to turn back to matchmakers for that personal touch. They're generally saying that they'd prefer to deal with a person rather than know that they are meeting another real person. And I guess they just don't like the whole internet side of it. They prefer to go and talk to someone. And her clients aren't the only ones. In Sydney, Vinco Anthony runs Australia's only matchmaking service exclusively for gay men. He says he's never short of clients, many of whom are time poor and sick of wasting time on apps that can at times feel like a pretty unsafe place. I think people on applications feel like they can say anything to anyone or write on their profile whatever they need to write because they're, they're in a way anonymous. So there's, you know, how we treat minority of groups but with nationalities and backgrounds or sexual preferences and all because it's not conversation in person. We feel that we're in a way able to be discriminative um, and that's, that's, that's dangerous. And it hasn't escaped the notice of the federal government. Last month, the Commonwealth put dating apps on notice, telling them they had until the middle of next year to clean up their act or the government would be forced to regulate. Speaking in Canberra at the time, Social Services Minister Amanda Rishworth said the companies need to improve their complaints and handling processes, among other things. Communications Minister Michelle Rowlands had this to say. In particular, the government is concerned about rates of sexual harassment, abusive and threatening language, unsolicited sexual images and violence facilitated by these platforms. 
In Australia, apps remain number one when it comes to dating. According to research by market comparison website Choosy, nearly half of all Aussies between 18 and 49 use at least one service, with more than 60% of those people feeling it's likely that that's where they'll meet a long-term partner. But for those that want to return to the traditional routes, it comes at a pretty cost and without any guarantee of finding love. Vinko Anthony's service has a lifetime membership. He says he'll keep trying until he finds you the one. And while some unhappy customers have reported paying thousands of dollars for inappropriate matches, he says his service goes on all the bad dates for you to find you that lifetime companion. People are just tired of going on the first 10 dates um, to get to know somebody and get get ghosted. Uh, So I think when you do it the old-fashioned way, it tends tends to have all of that work done for you before. Vinko Anthony, matchmaker at Bo Brummel Introductions, finishing that story from our reporter, Daniel Miles. And that is Australia-wide for this Wednesday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.